Now entering Nerdist.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 42, Obsession. Darsty blows with a hump like a snow hill. It is Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. And if I'm going to do anything today, I'm going to watch and discuss an episode of Star Trek. You can't stop me. No one dude, can stop me. Dude, dude. Yeah. You sound a little obsessed. Well, Ken, why shouldn't I? This week's episode, the totally engrossing Obsession. Obsession. <laughs> I, I, I think we mixed two pop culture references. Of uh, course, uh, that, that was the uh, uh, obsession commercial. Yes, good, good callback there. And, and at the much. beginning, at the very beginning, your intro wasn't that the um, oh uh, for kids in the eighties like books on tape thing. Oh my God, you watch too much television, and so yeah, did oh, I. You would better believe it. No, it wasn't books on tape. It was um, it was a oh, it was, was a comic it? adaptation. It was, it was basically was it. the classics turned into comics, but then they had an actor sort of read over it. I get to introduce you to a friend of mine one day because there's only one person I know besides you now who would have gotten that. That's kind of <laughs> that's kind of stunning to me. Yeah. So well, the uh, the the obsession. Uh, do you want to talk about the uh, the episode obsession, or do you want to talk about the obsession ad campaign for Calvin Klein? Uh, or, or that one clip of the Moby Dick uh, yeah. comic for yeah, children. Which I don't know, man. That, that's yeah. pretty great. Yeah. Here's, well, here, I, here's what I'll say. I don't know if. Uh, I don't know if this episode of Star Trek is analyzing me or I'm analyzing it. <laughs> there was another. Yeah. Nice. Um, yeah. We're talking about obsession in which uh, Captain Kirk gets obsessed with uh, tracking down and killing a giant cloud creature. Done. <laughs> so before we reveal the entire story, mm-hmm. uh, I do actually have some pretty interesting trivia here about this episode. So if you'll indulge me, I'll, uh, I'll break down with my obsession for trivia. Would you please? Okay, uh, Eddie Paskey, frequent guest star. In fact, I believe he was a guest player on Star Trek more than just about anybody. Uh, We sure enjoyed you being there as Lieutenant Leslie, but now he's dead. Um, In fact, he he dies pretty early on in this episode. But Ken, don't worry. Not only does Lieutenant Leslie or the actor Eddie Paskey come back in later episodes of Star Trek, he actually comes back in this very episode. Yes, due to some very interesting editing and uh, maybe not paying too close attention to who was on set what day and where that fell within the script. Eddie Paskey is dead and then he can be seen walking around later in the show. And, uh, you know, it's interesting that we do get a few more tidbits about Kirk in this episode. You know, we find out that he served on the USS Farragut under Captain Garavik. Um, things there didn't exactly go well for him, but uh, we'll get into that in a moment. Um, and I just keep thinking, wow, the guy's had a rough life. First it was Kodos, and then his first deep space assignment is this. Um, you know, he's he's had it rough. I yeah. have left Starfleet. Yeah, right. <laughs> Right. After the first mission, like, no, 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 no. I'm going to go back and open a bar in San Francisco. Right. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Um, but I do want to mention uh, a little bit here about the director, uh, Ralph Sineski, and kind of what was going on with the production of Star Trek at this time. Uh, we're, we're early to mid season two. And uh, the air date and production order is kind of grossly out of order at this point. But that's okay. What I want to 
bring up here is that this is at the point where Paramount had already taken over Desilu. And in Star Trek production, Gene Kuhn is gone. And John Meredith Lucas, who we met earlier as a writer-director, is now on board as producer. Uh, so he's kind of taken up the, uh, the big position that Gene Kuhn had. And one of the things that happened with this changeover with Paramount taking from Desilu is they started to cut budgets and they started to cut budgeted time. So what had normally taken six days or more to shoot an episode was now taking five to five and a half days of shooting. And, uh, you know, you may or may not have noticed that in this episode. I'll get your impressions later. But uh, when you look at scenes that are more tell and not show, where you have a lot of dialogue that is exposition rather than actually showing the event, that can be chalked up to what was going on with the production schedule. Um, and interestingly enough, we actually do have a discovered document from Roddenberry about that. Well, it is the production schedule and it's kind of cool. You can look through the day by day breakdown of everything that was shot that final day, that, that fifth and a half day was all the, uh, uh, scenes in Garavik's quarters, all of those interiors, and then just a little pickup in the uh, corridor. Uh, so do check that out and it gives you a little glimpse into how the show was produced. Today's forecast, cloudy with a chance of freak out for Captain James T. Kirk. We'll have more in the seven day, right after this. Prologue. Kirk and Spock are marveling over yet another rare element the Enterprise has been able to confirm on some planet. Tritanium, if you're a stickler for such details, but it really doesn't matter. The real news on this planet is that smoky stuff that we're seeing, but the landing party isn't. It's creeping in on the crew. Though when Spock uses his phaser beam to get a piece of the rock, the smoke seems to retreat or sneak away. Kirk may not see it, but he does smell something. A sweet odor, like honey. Reminds him of something that happened years ago on another planet and he doesn't seem pleased. He sends three red shirts... Uh-oh. He sends three red shirts to scout around and look for dichronium. Oh, and if you see a gaseous cloud, shoot it immediately. Scotty chimes in from the Enterprise. We're supposed to meet the USS Yorktown pretty soon, but Kirk says they've got stuff to check out here. Spock points out that dichronium only exists in lab experiments, but Kirk is pretty lost at this point. Meanwhile, we catch up with the red shirts. Say goodbye to two of them. The cloud gets the drop on them before their leader, Rizzo, can fire his phaser. Rizzo calls Kirk. He and Spock run to find the three crewmen, two dead, one mostly dead. Kirk says Spock will find every red corpuscle gone from their bodies. Well, except for the mostly dead guy. Kirk says the thing that did this can't possibly exist, but it does. And time now for the opening credits. Act 1. Everybody wants to leave orbit but Kirk. That rendezvous with the Yorktown? Yeah, that's to transport some highly perishable vaccines to planet Theta-7. Theta-7 really needs those vaccines, but Kirk says they're staying put to investigate the deaths of the crewmen. He understands that people on Theta-7 could die, but those are his orders. As for how the crewmen died, Dr. McCoy says it's medically impossible. No bites, cuts, or bruises, but every red corpuscle has been removed from the bodies of the dead men. And Rizzo's not doing so good either. Kirk suggests Bones check the records from 11 years ago and similar incidents aboard the USS Farragut. Same thing happened there and then. So look into that. But first, please revive the nearly dead Rizzo. 
Rizzo wakes long enough to tell Kirk what happened. It was cold. It smelled honey sweet, like being smothered by it. It was trying to draw strength from them, and then he's out again. On the bridge, Kirk is ignoring messages from Starfleet. He wants to talk to Spock about this thing on the planet. Maybe it's made of stuff we've never seen. Maybe it can hide from sensors. Maybe you should go watch the Farragut tapes with Bones. Spock goes to do so, passing a new security officer as he hits the bridge. He's Ensign Garavik. His dad was someone that means something to Kirk, though we'll have to wait to find out who and what. Word comes from sickbay that Rizzo has died, which seems to shake Garavik. They were friends, you see. Graduated the academy together. Hey, says Kirk. Want to kill the thing that killed Rizzo? You've got a red shirt. Get four more just like you and a few phasers. We're going to go hunt a cloud. On the planet, they find the traces of dichronium, and the hunt is on. Kirk with two red shirts, Garavik with two. Not surprisingly, one of Garavik's red shirts dies under the cloud, while another ends up in bad shape, despite Garavik's phaser fire. Thus ends Act 1. Act 2. Kirk is now convinced that the honey-sweet-smelling cloud is not only intelligent, but it's the same cloud that decimated the crew of the Farragut 11 years ago, despite that having happened on another planet in another part of the galaxy. Spock and McCoy don't think so. Also, they really think they should meet up with the Yorktown and deliver those meds to Theta-7. But Kirk decides to stay and fight. A cloud. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy quiz Garavik on what happened on the planet. Varied in shape, gaseous, semi-translucent... Garavik did not get the sense that it was a living or intelligent thing. Then again, he didn't come into direct contact with it. Also, he hesitated before firing at it. Not long at all, but enough time, unfortunately, to let the cloud get to his two red shirts. Kirk relieves Garavik of all duties and confines him to quarters until further notice. Spock and Bones think Kirk was a little bit hard on Garavik, but he won't hear it. Put it in your reports. I'm out. On the bridge, Scotty is preparing the Enterprise for leaving orbit, which Kirk says they are not going to do. Uhura says the Yorktown would really like to know when they're going to meet up, and Kirk says he's sick of his senior officers conspiring against him. Dude, did he say conspiring? He meant shut up and do what you're told. Meanwhile in sickbay, Spock and Bones are conspiring. Eh, kind of. Kirk, um, eh, Kirk may be obsessed with the cloud thing. Turns out what's happening here is a bit like what happened to the Farragut 11 years ago. Kirk was on board the Farragut, serving under Captain Garavik, father of the recently disgraced red-shirted ensign now under Kirk's command. In his quarters, Kirk is thinking his personal log, wondering whether the course of action he's pursuing is the right course of action, the rational course of action. In comes Bones. Get this, when Kirk encountered the cloud 11 years ago, he too hesitated before firing. Ever since, he's blamed himself for the loss of half the Farragut's crew and its captain. Bones tries to talk Kirk into letting himself off the hook, but Kirk will have none of it. There is an intelligence about the thing, a malevolence. It's evil, and it must be destroyed. Bones challenges Kirk on his level of obsession. It's not a threat, it's a statement of fact. He's preparing a medical report, which could be bad news. He brings in Spock. Oh, stuff's getting real now. Kirk explains that they are delaying, risking lives on Theta-7 because he's convinced that the cloud is a living creature, the same creature that did in the Farragut crew. So, shouldn't they stay and kill this thing? He's saying it all very rationally, so Bones decides to leave his medical log entry as a work in progress for now. Just then, Chekhov chimes in. The cloudy thing is leaving the planet. Kirk takes the ship to red alert. They are chasing the great white cloud. Act 3. The Enterprise is in hot pursuit. Too hot. Scotty's concerned that the ship will break up, and they are barely gaining on it. 
They can see it, though, and read it on sensors. Spock says it seems to be in a state between matter and energy. Scotty warns that continued pursuit at this speed will seriously blow up the Enterprise any second. Kirk finally relents and takes the speed down to warp six. A short interlude between Ensign Garavik and Nurse Chapel reveals he is blaming himself both for the Enterprise's cloud chase and Kirk's apparent unhinging. Now back to the action. Back on the bridge, it appears that the cloud has slowed considerably. Kirk thinks maybe it has decided to fight and calls all hands to battle stations. Garavik hears the call and heads to the bridge. He'd like to be allowed back to his post, but Kirk does not acknowledge he's got the cloud in weapons range and opens up on it. But nothing is doing anything to it. And now it's closing in on the Enterprise. And thanks to a series of unfortunate events, it's basically got an open window onto the ship. One more guy's dead, one more guy's near dead, and the thing is on board. Bones blames Kirk's trophy hunt, though Spock says there's no point in arguing about whose fault it is. Spock now acknowledges that the cloud is a creature, an intelligent creature, and guess what? If it's alive, we can kill it. And suddenly that makes everything that Kirk's done okay with everyone. Spock points out that firing on the cloud did nothing, so Kirk shouldn't blame himself for what happened to the Farragut either. Kirk's not interested right now. Spock goes to let Ensign Garavik know that his hesitation was natural. Then, uh-oh, the creature is seeping into Garavik's quarters through the ventilation system. Spock sends him out and sends us to commercial. Act 4. Garavik lets Kirk know the situation. The creature is in his cabin and it has Spock. Some of Scotty's tricks with the vents have gotten the creature out of Garavik's quarters and it didn't kill Spock. Something to do with his Vulcan physiology. The creature is leaving the ship. Kirk stops to chat with Garavik. Good job heading to the bridge during Red Alert. Also, don't blame yourself for what happened on the planet. There was nothing you could have done, just as there was nothing I could have done 11 years ago. Now get back to work, you big nut. Back on the bridge, we find that the cloud has left the Enterprise at high warp. It's cool, though. Kirk knows where it's going somehow. Psychic connection, intuition, whatever. The thing's headed to its home, the same planet where it fought the Farragut 11 years ago. Kirk calls the Yorktown. They'll meet up in two days. Bones is worried. Hey, remember the perishable, life-saving drugs? And the lives that need to be saved? Spock's on Kirk's side this time, though. For some reason, he thinks the cloud is going back to its home planet to spawn, which won't leave one killer cloud, but thousands. They come up with a plan to kill it, though it will rip half the atmosphere off the planet, may destroy the Enterprise, and may kill whoever sets the trap. The finale is dicey, but luckily everyone makes it out safe and sound, except for the cloud. It's dead, people. Despite a heroic bit of insubordination on the planet, Kirk makes peace with Ensign Garavik. He'd like to hang out with him later and tell him stories about his father, Captain Garavik. The end. You know, um, if there's one takeaway for me, one takeaway image from this episode, uh, it's Garavik running into his quarters and just diving face down into his bed. <laughs> I know. Isn't that nice? <laughs> you know? It was so... Oh, it was so cute. It was it was like Messy Marvin. It was a Christmas story. It was Dennis the Menace. Right. Yeah. Right. It was but like it was like I, having I a five year old. I don't want to be on your ship anyway. <laughs> exactly. Dad's mad. I'm in trouble. I don't want to fight your cloud monster. I left. <laughs> I left uh, most of the um, uh, interaction between Nurse Chapel and Garavik in his quarters out because it didn't really move the story along at all. But it was mm-hmm. neat to see uh, Nurse Chapel have a bit of character there. She kind of tricks him into eating because yeah. he's, I mean, he really is a pouty little boy at this point. He, I'm not hungry. 
I don't want to be here. Yeah, but, and and what and what she do? She brought him soup. Yeah, she did. You know, because God, she is good with a with a bowl of soup. Yeah, but I mean, she also tricks him into eating. She she lies to him basically right. and says, "Yeah, yeah Doctor McCoy has given a prescription for you to eat, and if you don't, he's gonna he's gonna hook you up to an IV and feed you. So eat your soup." And uh, you know, then she goes back to sick bay, and Bones is like, "What have you been up to?" She's like, "Ah, eh, nothing." Yeah, <laughs> it's like psychology. Don't you worry. Yeah, but she got him to eat, so you know, yeah. that was actually cool to see a bit of character from her. Besides, yes, doctor, no doctor. She should open a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> she should. Hey, uh, by the way, speaking of Garavik's quarters, yeah. um, could I just point out that there is a ventilation switch? in the crew quarters and it's a ventilation switch that apparently leads to, I, I don't know, somewhere outside where a cloud monster could get in. Well, I, no, you're being unfair. It leads to something that leads to outside. <laughs> all right. Cause it just seems like an awfully short distance. Yeah. And you and I both had the same reaction to the plan for getting the, uh, the cloud monster out. Yeah. You know what we should do? We should just flood the ventilation system, which correct me if I'm wrong. That is how people breathe, right? Yeah, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. Let, let's flood that with radioactive waste. Oh, sure, no problem. <laughs> fascinating idea. In fact, I'm surprised at that point Spock didn't go, fascinating. Yeah. Because I mean, that, that, point, is, that is truly unexpected. Right. At that point, they should just roll down the windows and, <laughs> and let the cloud monster dissipate that way. Hold your yeah. breath and hold on to something. We're just going gonna to open, uh, open up the pod bay doors or whatever and uh, you know, blow the whole thing out. It'll be good. But seriously, hold on tight. So it, we've been making light of the episode, as we sometimes do. Um, yeah. But I do have to point out that, uh, you know, there were scenes in this that I uh, really thought were good, mm-hmm. solid moments. Like uh, the Spock and McCoy scene is good, e- even though it is a lot of long exposition, as I kind of mentioned in the, uh, the trivia of how the episode was structured and why you have a lot of exposition. Um, and then the scene between the three in Kirk's quarters where they're questioning his actions um, and McCoy gets to call him out on just using his intuition. I thought all of that was good um, and, and it was all acted well. Um, so that was kind of cool to see. Yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah I mean, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm finding I'm, I'm the not, Well, I'm not going to I'm not going to argue each scene with you. I actually thought, yeah. well, I, well I, except I guess I am. I, I didn't really like the one between just uh, Spock and Bones. It was OK. Oh, really? It was yeah. all right. But. Oh, wait a minute. No, I'm confusing that. No, I actually did like that one. My apologies. I'm thinking about the one the one where Kirk is like uh, Bones. You should go check the tapes on the Farragut. Yeah. No, no, and no, Bones that, is that, like. Okay, I will. I mean, that actually struck me as as really yeah bad acting. But you're right. I'm I'm confusing that with the one. Um, the one with Spock actually was pretty good. The whole yeah, the the one with Spock just kind of confronting McCoy about look. We, I need we your have to talk about the captain. Yeah. Well, actually, it, it's cute. Before that, I need your advice. Well, then I need a drink. <laughs> right. That's right. cute. Yeah, that worked out. <laughs> my good. my apologies. Go ahead. It was good. Um, and maybe this should have gone in trivia, but uh, the. the the timeline now gets uh, another specific point. You know, last week we were talking about how in the deadly years, Kirk is 34. Yep. And we know that his first deep space assignment was 11 years ago on the Farragut. So that would have made him 23, fresh out of the academy, I would assume. Yeah, well, I mean, since it was his first deep space mission, you would think so. But yeah. And, and by the way, I didn't know that you could beam down antimatter. Um, <laughs> it, it, apparently, you have to have a special... Uh, thing to hold it in and that thing is uh, so unwieldy it takes two men to carry it oh oh wait a minute 
no, no, I'm sorry. The thing floats. It floats. Yeah. <laughs> so you don't actually need two men to carry it. Yeah, I'm thinking maybe um, Garavik should have been carrying the uh, jar of hemoglobin. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Then, because you're right. I mean, uh, Kurt could just sort of push uh, the, the antimatter in the direction it needed to go. Mm-hmm. As far as being able to beam antimatter down, though, I assume that they're just beaming down the container it's in. And so it stays in the container. It's sort of like, you know, the, the, the transporter doesn't beam down your heart, right? It beams down you and your heart's inside you. So your heart goes with you. Right. So I mean, is that, is that how you get around being able to beam down I, antimatter I, with a matter transporter? I, I'm not even going to try. <laughs> I'm not even going to try because right. I, I, yeah, I just don't know. Um, but it didn't make sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ken, I'm going to tell you, if you're ever in a difficult situation with a transporter, if it's not working, you need to beam somebody up. All you need to do is cross-circuit to A and then cross-circuit to B. Mm-hmm. This is two. It's A and B, and it's just like insert tab A into slot B. It's like making paper models. It's really, really easy. Even a Spock can do it. You know, and, it uh, makes it ridiculously tragic what happens at the beginning of the motion picture then. I know. Did nobody right. think to cross-circuit A with cross-circuit B? Ugh. Yeah, kind of terrible. It's a shame. It is. It's a shame. This episode sponsored by Starfleet Delivery. Starfleet, when it absolutely positively has to get there when the guy commanding the ship feels like it. We got some listener feedback uh, prior to this episode. I'd like to read one now, and then um, I'll share another one with you at the end of this segment. Uh, But this one is from Leland, who is uh, uh, one of our Facebook followers. And I'll just read what he has to say here. Uh, Trek was never designed to be a soap opera, and NBC ran them in any order they felt like. Um, and that's one reason nobody ever got promoted on the show. Check off State and Ensign with no hope of moving up. Uh, but if you watch them in filmed order, as I have many, many times, there is development of the main characters, especially Kirk. I've noticed that in the first half of the series, Kirk was somewhat cocky, brash, and a wee bit immature. But in the second half, he is more sure of his abilities, a bit more serious, and a bit more mature overall. The key episode seems to be Obsession where Kirk learns he is not responsible for the deaths of half the crew of the Farragut and finally has his revenge on the creature that killed them. Now, whether or not this was a deliberate plot device or whether Bill Shatner unconsciously played it that way, he is, after all, a dedicated actor and cared very much for his character, is pure of speculation. It could also be that the changes in the characters were the results of Fred Friedberger's involvement during the third season. Uh, thank you, Leland, for writing that. And... Um, is kind of double dipping on something that we posted uh, last week, but the discovered document actually two weeks ago, uh, the discovered document that we posted from Gene Roddenberry talking about the continued tweaking and developing of the characters. Um, so I thought that dovetailed in nicely, and it's interesting, Leland, that you pick out obsession as that key moment that we see a change in Kirk or, or at least I, I don't know how much of a change, but it, it's a little more depth and it's a little more detail about the character of Kirk. It is. Although I'm not sure there's something about this that bothers me. Um, uh, Kirk can only forgive himself and uh, Ensign Garavik when he learns that there was nothing that they could have done anyway. And, and I'm not sure you sort of cheapen the turning point. If, if the thing that lets Kirk off the hook is the fact that, he was doomed to fail 
rather than, you know, dealing with the fact that he did fail. I mean, either he did everything he could aboard the Farragut, and he should have come to terms with that over the last 11 years, or he didn't do everything he could, (laughs) whether it would have worked or not, and he should have come to terms with that too. I'm having a hard time figuring out also how a guy who has spent the last 11 years thinking that he killed half of a starship becomes captain. I mean, I, I joked earlier that I would have left Starfleet. But seriously, if you if you can, at a moment's notice, be thrown into obsession and paralysis based on something that happened 11 years ago, I'm not sure how you end up taking command of a starship. You need a psychologist. Well, and I, I'm really glad that you made that note because I, I kind of made the same thing um, carrying it around with his discussion with Garavik at, at the end when he kind of snaps Garavik out of his funk saying, well, yeah, your, your actions would have made no difference anyway. And I, I do, I, I completely agree with you. It, it undermines the idea of, you know, getting over what happened, being able to overcome your, your faults or your flaws or your mistakes. Um, Instead, just saying, oh, well, it, it didn't matter. Oh, well, wipe our hands clean of that one, shall we? <laughs> <You know? laughs> right, right. I, it actually, I mean, it's weird. Yes. Well, I won't go into all of that. I mean, basically, it made, me, it made me start thinking about there are things that I have carried with me my entire life. They have informed what I've done. And it's not like it's not like I've, I've become fine with them because, oh, it turns out there was nothing else I could do. They inform who you become. And, and, yeah. and we sort of lose that from Kirk when I mean the only I mean he either is a either is a stark raving loon about it or it turns out it didn't matter after all yeah he has an on and off switch there there's no gradation here right and, and I don't know if there was some decision made there to say well if we if we go the other way or if we don't have that moment then it somehow makes Kirk less heroic less perfect but we're already going down that path and we're we're showing um not a weakness but but at least a a texture to his character and then we pull the rug out from under it saying well no didn't matter yeah Uh, yeah yeah. i don't know i mean the thing is i don't know how you would have shown that i mean (laughs) as we always say 48 minutes and you know a parade of writers coming through so i mean there's not you're not necessarily going to have I mean, to Leland's point, I mean, certainly Kirk is, I mean, not Kirk, Shatner is playing the same character every week. So he may add nuance as they go. He may add a bit of maturity as they go, but there's nothing on the page yeah. that indicates any of that maturity. Um, well, and here's the thing. You either have a moment where one of his trusted advisors, McCoy or Spock, kind of talks him out of it, which would have just been more talk about the situation, or you put somebody else in that situation, which we were doing with Garavik, but then their resolution is the same. <laughs> you know, yeah. their resolution is saying, oh, well, it, it doesn't matter because if you had fired on time, it wouldn't have done anything to the creature. And, and it's unfortunate because if the, if the drama had played out slightly differently and Garavik really were in the same position as Kirk and, and Kirk could have truly seen himself in Garavik, then maybe he could have gotten over that. Yeah, um, the problem is how are you going to tell that story without just telling it? I mean, you can have yeah. the aha moment for for both Kirk and Garavik. It's just, yeah. I mean, it's too bad that, that it takes the aha moment for Kirk to suddenly be okay. Right, right. Um, you know, in uh, Friday's Child, which we did uh, not that long ago, uh, we had Kirk, this is kind of a, a little 
aside, but acting out of revenge. Spock actually calls him out. Oh, is this an act of revenge? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, it is. As is this. This is not an act of revenge, John. No, no, no. This is because it's going to spawn into a thousand different things. Yes, I understand Uh, that there is some problem on a planet where lots of people could die, but mm -hmm, this mm -hmm. cloud might be smart, and this might be the same cloud, and somehow we suddenly know that this cloud's going to break into a thousand clouds. And so, yeah, this is definitely the more sensible. Yeah, you you just just said a word that really bothers me a lot here, might. Might, yes. (laughs) Well, I understand there are a lot of variables. What did he say? I understand there's a lot of ifs. Yeah. He actually did mention that. I mean, if it's the same one and if it can do this and, you know, I mean, it's called obsession. So the, we know that Kirk is is kind of got an unhealthy obsession at this point. The biggest problem with this episode, and this actually goes back to the parade of writers that we were talking about. And forgive me if I'm jumping to the part that we should be doing later. Maybe we'll mm-hmm. revisit it. Um, we just saw Decker go through this. Yeah. Like what? Four or five episodes ago, we saw Decker have this crazy obsession that nearly kills everybody and everything. I mean, you know, to the point that had Decker not ended up dying inside the doomsday machine, right? Um, he would have been brought up on like court martial. <laughs> he would have to yeah. have been right. Yeah. And now like not that far down the road, we see Kirk doing the same thing. Um, yeah. And, and this again, like I say, goes back to the whole parade of writers deal. I mean, this would have been fantastic. This would have been an interesting, informative episode had it happened before. I did. I just jumped to the end of the show, didn't I? I oh, apologize. No, no, but, no, but I, I think you're absolutely right because this is germane to the idea of Kirk's character in this episode. There's so much about it that, that bothers me because, yeah, we watched uh, Doomsday Machine not that long ago. We saw Kirk be the one to step up and take command and and if he had to overstep his boundaries at all with a senior officer then by god he's going to do it because decker was acting out of crazed obsession right so um, nobody better do it with him right yeah exactly he he's doing the exact same thing here he's a little less sweaty while he's doing it (laughs) okay that's fine and he does keep shaving he does keep shaving. Good for him. Um, but this episode would have worked better had Star Trek truly been uh, uh, episodic and carried on kind of longer arcs. You could have drawn a line from this into Doomsday Machine or you could have done in modern TV style a flashback. Yeah. You know, had this been a longer piece, maybe you, you do a flashback to show young Kirk having that and young Kirk trying to get over it. Um, but yeah, it, it's two episodes that are too similar happening, happening too closely to each other. Yeah. Had they happened in reverse order, it probably would have even been better, too. And again, we really mm-hmm. have skipped to the end of the episode. I, you want to go ahead and wrap up? No, 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 no. I I think we needed to get that out. The the discussion here is really, you know, what are the main points of this episode? Well, you know, we know that by the time we get to the end of our podcast here, the main points are not about um, not going to be a you see Timmy moment. This is all a discussion about Kirk's character and what happens to Kirk's character. And we've already revealed this idea that Kirk's change isn't maybe the change that he needed because it, it, it's kind of it's kind of a gimme. It's like, oh, well, that thing that you have been living with for all these years that you thought you did wrong, you didn't do it wrong anyway. So you're off the hook. 
Yeah, I was going to say it is. It's an off the hook moment. It's not yeah. and not a crazy like you know. Oh, he's off the hook. <laughs> it's an off the hook moment. I mean, you say the change in Kirk. There's no change in Kirk. Right. I mean, as far as Kirk's character goes, there's actually no change in Kirk. There's a bit of development as far as what the character knows. Yeah, there's a reveal for Kirk. There's a reveal, yeah. but there's no change. I mean, had he not been presented with the evidence that he actually did nothing wrong 11 years ago, he'd yeah. still be walking around like a loon. And the next time, you know, somebody brings him a honey-covered croissant. <laughs> He's going to snap and start chasing something across the galaxy on the Enterprise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a good thing we haven't had a, a yeoman in a while to actually bring him a uh, honey cup or something. <laughs> good point that. Yeah. 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 But you know, it, his impulsiveness is, is something that just depending on when you catch him, it'll either work for or against Kirk. Um, so we, we get this hint of complexity. Um, more than than we've maybe seen before, um, but yeah, the, the question is, do we actually see him mature? And, and I, I don't really think that we do. And here's another question for you. Uh, I think some of the thing that I enjoyed in this episode is, you know, I mentioned the McCoy and Spock moments of trying to call him out for mm-hmm. intuition, and Kirk keeps leaning on this. He he's got a hunch. He's got a feeling the creature might do this. And Spock even says this to him. Uh, what, what does he say? Uh, oh, do you believe that you're in communication with the creature now? <laughs> you know? Right. And, and, and this, the words of that struck me. Do you believe that? Not, not uh, we know what the creature is doing. We know what the outcome of this will be. It's just like, uh, okay, Kirk, are you having a delusion again? <laughs> do, <laughs> I was going to ask. Take you away from here. I was going to ask. Do you think that was a scientific question on Spock's part, or do you think that was him saying, "Okay, you're seeming crazy"? So let me ask you a question: Are you crazy? I, I think it was a bit of psychology. I absolutely do. You really? do. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. Because yeah. I wasn't. I wasn't. I didn't. Well, I didn't. I didn't really get stuck on that question because I well, kind of got frustrated. I think. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Not not that Spock would not have taken the answer to that question seriously. Yeah. But but I think it was a little – I think that phrasing is important about how he says it. Um, and, and it's interesting to see that Kirk is having a hard time here separating his beliefs and assumptions from the reality of what we really know about the creature. Um, yeah, but I mean so does everybody. Where does Spock get the idea that they're going that it's going to spawn? He actually says there's evidence that it's going back to its home planet to spawn. Right. Where, right. So is he hiding that evidence from us? Because uh, there's been no indication to this point that that's what's happening. But Spock says it. And it's like okay, well then that, that's what's happening. He got it through that little blue blacklit viewer that he yeah. has on the bridge. Maybe that, that's the evidence right there. Can I ask another question? Has science officer Spock just given up? <laughs> <laughs> Given up on what? Given up on you know? Hey, look a new life form. Maybe uh, no. Maybe yeah. I could. Maybe I could study it. Maybe I could find out it's intelligent. Maybe we could talk to it. Maybe there's something we could do besides you know blowing it up or trying to blow it up. Like, hey guys, remember what I did with that Horda not that long ago? That thing was made of silicon. <laughs> this this has a thing for iron. Yeah. And I even did that with Nomad. So if I can do that with Nomad and a Horda. Give me a shot with the cloud. I'll be honest. When he was in Garavik's uh, quarters and the thing starts seeping through the vent and he puts mm-hmm. his hands on it, I thought yeah. he was actually going to mind melt. I thought we might be headed towards – I must not have seen this episode before because I had no memory of how it ended. 
um, yeah. or how it started or how it went in the middle. So I think probably I've never actually seen this episode before. But when he puts his, <laughs> when he puts his hands on the grate and the cloud's sort of going over it, I'm thinking, aha, aha, the mental power that is Spock is going to, you know, do his right. mind meld thing. And no. Yeah. <laughs> right. It, it, you're absolutely right. It, yeah. it, it's a little surprising. So there's a lot we have to just sort of take on Kirk's intuition and then Spock's uh, magic evidence. Ken, I mentioned earlier at the beginning of this segment that we had a couple of pieces of uh, viewer mail, listener mail. And the other one here is from Alice. And uh, she wrote in, uh, it's interesting, she's been following along with our show, and she also has been reading the James Blish uh, novelizations, the adaptations that he wrote about Star Trek in the 70s. So she says, in Blish, on page 116, Spock, while speaking to Garavik in his quarters, has a line that sums up what I think is one of the messages. Hate of the self, always undeserved, will ultimately crush you. I don't know for certain if that's a humanist versus religion thing, but certainly religions often work hard to make one feel guilty in order to get you to behave. These days, that's not so popular. My church certainly doesn't focus on that. Anyway, I think one message is that you should not let guilt follow you around because it will do more harm than good. Uh, Thank you very much for writing that, Alice. Um, You know, part of the thing on Mission Log is that we try to stay very strictly to the show itself, and uh, we don't pull from other sources like the novelizations. But um, in that case, with this particular episode, I think that's kind of interesting because that is one of the uh, one of the takeaways, one of the points of this episode is that uh, the the guilt which we have seen before can't overwhelm; it can't prevent you from doing your job. However. <laughs> we're back to this early part of our discussion, Ken. Does Kirk really get over anything? Yeah. No, I mean, that's, I mean, it's, <laughs> that's what's fascinating about that quote is we actually, well, I actually had it in my notes. Um, this is sort of a lesson that Kirk should have learned earlier. And in fact, did learn earlier in enemy within. Yeah. When he's yeah. split into Logie Kirk and alt Kirk or good Kirk and bad Kirk, as a lot of people tend to refer to it. Both of those Kirks see things in themselves and looking at the other one that they can't stand. They want to be Mm -hmm. done with them. I mean, Logie Kirk just doesn't like Alt Kirk. He's he's, he's brutish and terrible. And Alt Kirk doesn't like the weakness of Logie Kirk. And and you get the same thing when Kirk is looking at Garavik. He sees the same mistake that he made 11 years ago, and it's Mm -hmm. repugnant. It's reprehensible. He has not been able to come to a place where he can deal with the fact that that happened. And so... Yeah, I mean, that that quote is actually right on. I never would have known about it had Alice not written in, so thanks. But yeah, I mean, that's it's basically what Kirk picked up, I guess, in episode six of season one <laughs> right, about right. being okay with what's inside you. Eh, he seems to have kind of forgotten that a tiny bit. And uh, yeah, yeah, further down the road. I may know why Kirk forgot the lessons learned from Decker and the Planet Eater last week when he went senile. He may have forgotten all about that. Well, I said earlier that we may have jumped to this part already. So again, John, I say, do you just want to say goodbye? (laughs) No, no, there's more to say. Yeah, there is more to say. Time to figure out what the messages, morals, and meanings of this episode were. And of course, the... um, sometimes dreaded question, does it stand the test of time? 
Um, it feels like we pulled some interesting stuff out of the episode, although, as you said earlier, John, there's no you see Timmy in this one. Well, and, and not only is there no you see Timmy, I feel like there's kind of a cop-out yeah. when, when we get to the, the central core here of, uh, of what the episode is about. So that's too bad. You know, it was funny, not two minutes ago, you were saying that you couldn't remember if you had seen this episode when you were younger. Mm-hmm. And when you, when you were watching it in prep for our show, uh, it, it was kind of new to you. And I have to say that I think I have watched this episode in prep for our show five times now. And uh, over the course of about a week. And I still don't remember it. Uh, because <laughs> it, it's just... Um, I think the pacing is absolutely terrible. And I think that all these attempts to make it heavy and, and to make it important and really reveal stuff, I think they kind of fall flat uh, because you don't really go there. And I, I understand that, you know, again, it's an older TV show, so we can't always fault it on just the style of older TV shows. But um, Star Trek has also given us great moments of really uh, being deep and really pushing forward. And this one doesn't this just becomes about how do we defeat the monster and then we kind of dust ourselves off at the end and say oh look that wasn't so bad my mistakes weren't really mistakes after all yeah yeah we try not to get too much into the minutiae of the show i mean like as far as you know i don't know tying it into previous episodes things like that Mm -hmm. we mentioned earlier that decker should have been brought up on charges yeah. Um, had he not died in the mouth of the doomsday machine, there is no way that Kirk should be able to walk away from this. He left a whole planet. I understand he talks about intuition and what have you. Yeah. He left a whole planet of people uh, um, to die. <laughs> mm-hmm. There is perishable medicine uh, that they apparently just can't make any place, and they have to hook up with the Yorktown and take it to uh, Theta 7. And he, he's yeah. going to leave that on hold because he thinks probably they should kill this thing. Now, you can say, well, the thing was going to go spawn, and there were going to be thousands of them, and so that would be bad. The only reason it was going to go spawn and there would be thousands of them is because it was damaged by the Enterprise. And why was it damaged by the Enterprise? Because Kirk was obsessed. Because Kirk basically abandoned his post, he abandoned his duty, you know, to, to go chase his white whale. And that's, yeah. um, you know, <laughs> but that's not going to happen. I mean, the, the part where Spock says, uh, gentlemen, I, I put to you that there's no point in trying to figure out whose fault it is now. It's like academic. Okay, he's right in that moment, but they really should circle back around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And they're really not gonna. Right. And so, I mean, if for that reason as well, it just... It doesn't quite work. Now, again, I don't think I dislike it as much as you do, but this, again, I think I have three categories. I think I have, you know, good, fine, and either not good or not fine. (laughs) (laughs) To me, this episode is fine. I mean, this episode actually would have been better had it happened before the Doomsday Machine, and then had we been able to have the Doomsday Machine, and then have like a moment of realization on Kirk's part. Like, wow, is that... I was being a total Decker a few weeks ago. I feel bad (laughs) about that now. It would have worked better that way, but, you know, not being as fully realized actually as the Doomsday Machine and coming so close on the heels of the Doomsday Machine, um, maybe it's just a victim of timing, but unfortunately it just, it really, it, it, not only does it not work, it really doesn't work because of of where it falls in uh, broadcast order, I think. 
Yeah, I, I'm going to meet you halfway and just say, yeah, it, it is a victim of the the scheduling in that respect. That had this episode been written earlier and aired earlier than Doomsday Machine, there is some nice backstory here to learn about Kirk. Yeah, uh, and there are how do I put this? There are worse episodes of Star Trek that I like better than this one. <laughs> you know because it, because sometimes even bad star trek can be either entertaining or defensible in some way i mean you, you just wait when we get into season three there, there are episodes that i will defend that uh, i think other people will call me out for just being entirely crazy but but this one i just think as a piece of tv drama um like i said i, I watched it five times and i just found myself my mind drifting and uh, getting yeah. lost uh, because I, I think it's badly produced or, and, and that's not to call out specifically the producer. I just think a, as a whole, this is not a well-produced episode of Star Trek and it probably goes back to the script and it probably goes back to some of the production limitations they had. So I'm, I'm not pegging that on any individual and I'm certainly not pegging it on the actors because the actors all have really good moments in this. Um, it just does not come together as an episode. Oh, and by the way, I, I didn't mention it earlier, but that moment where Garavik is trying to out-hero the hero at yeah. the end, yeah. it, it just made me think, Kirk, you should have sent Spock. <laughs> you should have just <laughs> given him the floaty antimatter device and just send him down to the planet, and uh, you go meet the Yorktown, and you come back later and pick up Spock, because Spock <laughs> will be fine. He's made of copper. Yeah, Garavik, by the way, uh, another one of the things that should be revisited, you know, when this comes up before review. Yeah. Starfleet. Right. <laughs> Consider yourself on report, mister. Eh, but not really. Come on, let me tell you about your dad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so that's kind of where we are on this episode. But we would love to hear where you are on this episode or any others. You can reach us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter at the handle Mission Log Pod, or you can call us 323-522-5641, 323-522-5641. You can email us, missionlog at roddenberry.com, and please don't forget to check out our very nice home on the internet, missionlogpodcast.com. Remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Hey, Ken, next week... Things are not looking too good for Scotty when he is caught literally with blood on his hands. It's Wolf in the Fold. Some of the music for the mission log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages by Key Theory, free to download at K.I. Theory. I may know why Kirk forgot the lessons learned from Decker and the Planet Eater last week when he went senile. He may have forgotten all about that. Did I say that already? And transmission. Now leaving Nerdist.com.